You would bow your heads and join me in prayer. It is a wonderful circumstance of our time as believers that we get to celebrate the beginning and the end. Um, in the same week that we celebrate baptism and new life, both here on earth and with the church, we also um, have had a week of, of earthly loss. Um, but you are the Lord of all. You are the I am. You are the, your never-ending character is as our great deliverer. Um, remind us this morning that we, all who believe, stand in an everlasting covenant with you, a covenant where the sting of death has already been defeated. And that's the promise for these newborns and the promise for those that have gone on before us. For those whose hearts are heavy this week, for those who mourn, let us take comfort in your message that there is a time for everything, a season for everything under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die. We're reminded by the events of this week that you hold our days in your hands. You know and understand the moments of our lives, the times to be born and the times to die. But let us rejoice that there is and was tremendous meaning and purpose in the lives of Dr. Keller and Dr. Reeder. Help us to acknowledge and rejoice that you are part of the mourning process by watching over the departed and blessing those left behind. Let us be encouraged in the promise that from the very beginning, your Son and our Savior went before these saints, just as he has gone before us, to prepare a place for them in our Father's heavenly mansion. We also lift up this morning those in our congregation in need of our specific prayers this week. Uh, We praise God for the birth of Ophelia, Isla, and Emerson Stokes. Uh, and their parents, Alyssa and Baxley Stokes. We, play, we pray for Kathy Girado as she has hip replacement surgery on Wednesday. We pray for our missionaries, John and Kelly Beth, serving in Asia. Um, we bring all of these things before you in your son's precious name. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're a new member of Covenant Presbyterian Church... Uh, or, or a visitor, that might have felt like a remarkably big moment in the life of our church, and, and it is, and it, it was. Uh, Josh Johnson has been one of our pastors for the last five years. Uh, we all knew that we would lose him eventually, <laughs> and uh, that announcement has come today, and we're, we're deeply sad. We're going to uh, eventually miss Josh and Liz and their four boys deeply, uh, but that's a good sacrifice for any church. Even before today's enormous, joyful, and sad announcement about the Johnsons, uh, if you know that our church, Covenant Presbyterian Church, are in a, is in a denomination, you already knew it was a heavy week for us, a big week for us. Um, it's very well known uh, that Pastor Harry Reeder passed away on Thursday, the pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church, uh, the church where our denomination was born in December of 1973. Uh, also, the very next day, Tim Keller, uh, the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, died. So Thursday and Friday, our denomination, we experienced two uh, very significant deaths of significant leaders in our denomination. It really began last Sunday. Last Sunday, Steve Smallman, uh, who uh, pastored uh, McLean Presbyterian Church for 30 years, uh, he passed away uh, last Sunday. Um, you might recognize his name if your children 
became communicates at Covenant Presbyterian Church. I'm going to hold this in front of you. Lots of you children will recognize this book. If you went through the communicants class in the last 20 years, uh, we used this to disciple you. Karen uh, and Mark uh, used this to disciple you as you became communicant members of Covenant Presbyterian Church. We estimate that over, over 400 covenant children in our church were discipled using this material and the author of it died this past Sunday. We, uh, we, we reached out to the denomination, um, thanks to Katie Flores helping me out, and Sue Jakes estimate that conservatively 500 churches have used this material written by Steve Smallman to disciple children. And that's important because Steve Smallman was an evangelist. He was passionately committed to t- sharing the gospel with the coming generations. He would have loved the three covenant baptisms today. Harry Reeder uh, was famous for lots of reasons. He was an evangelist. He was deeply committed to making the gospel of Jesus Christ known to waiters and waitresses, to friends and family, and people all around Birmingham and the globe, deeply committed to global mission. Tim Keller was an evangelist, a great apologist, deeply committed to planning churches uh, in large cities, global cities in Manhattan, but also around North America and around the globe because the nations are moving to our global cities. All three men, one of the things they had in common besides being ministers in this denomination, they were all deeply committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ and making sure people around them understood the grace and mercy of God. As a matter of fact, uh, Dave Link and Ingram Link were members of Steve Smallman's church in McLean, uh, Presbyterian Church in McLean, Virginia. And, and when I began to speak of Steve Smallman, Dave wasn't able to stay in the first service. It moved him. And this is what he told uh, Ingram. Steve Smallman was the first pastor to explain the grace and mercy of God to me. That's very, very important background for our passage today. Because our passage today tells us how to how to live our public lives, one angle on it, one, one portion of it, how we relate to authority in public. And it's, in, it's important that you and I focus on how to live in the present. Here's why. As we've seen this week and we've seen today, things will change. People we love will die. If Jesus doesn't come back first, You and I will die, and we do not know how long we have. Henry led us through our liturgy meeting this morning, and he said, you know, we get to the back of the service, then Robbie will uh, preach, lose the table, and say the benediction. And I said, if I'm still alive, and I wasn't joking. Every breath you have is the Lord's sovereign gift to you. You don't know how many breaths you have left. Every day, every moment, every week, every month, every season, every year that you have, it is God's gift to you. And so it's important because so much changes that you and I need to learn, we didn't know how to live in light of God's saving mercy. And that's what our passage is about today. Uh, so let me read it to you. It's from 1 Peter two thirteen through 17. Will you please read along with me? Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God." 
honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. All flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Will you pray with me? Oh, Father, we admit in your presence that things change. We're not in control of our hours or our moments or our days. You are. Your character doesn't change. Your word doesn't change. Your plan doesn't change. Your salvation doesn't change. Help us see again what it means to be your beloved people today. Strengthen us and empower us through the Holy Spirit and your word today to live holy lives that bring you great honor and magnify the saving power of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. I want you to understand, I want to to remind you of the context of these verses. These verses basically say, I want you to be good. Be good in public. Don't cause trouble in public. I want you to be submissive and honor people. And if you take it out of context, it might just sound like, be nice. Don't cause trouble. And it could, it could land on us like just sort of like a, a, a friendly moralism. But I want to remind you of the context of this passage because what's been stressed so far is the mercy of God in rescuing a people and making us his very own people. Look at it with me. It's printed down below our passage today. This is what very recently read. You are a chosen race. You've believed in the Lord Jesus. God sent his son for your salvation. You've believed in him. So now you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Uh, Peter there pulls four different ways from the Old Testament to say to Gentile believers in what's now called Turkey, that part of the world to say, hey, you've believed in Jesus. You are God's people. That's who you are. You have a new identity. You now belong to God You are God's possession and God has a plan for you in your life. You are God's people. And then what he says immediately, why is that significant? You're God's people that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Today, as we remember the life of Steve Smallman and Harry Reader and Tim Keller, we can say they all three modeled that for us. We appreciate their ministries about the grace and mercy of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, because they all three modeled that they knew they were saved, that they might proclaim the excellencies of the one who called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. But Peter here isn't writing to pastors or missionaries. He's just writing to the people of God who are now sojourners and exiles and feeling it. And they're living in a culture where persecution against them is being turned up a little bit. And Peter says, yes, no, I know it's going to get hard and it's going to get harder, but this is who you are. You're God's people and you've been set aside. You've been set apart by God to make him known. That's who you are. And look what he says there in verse 10. This is all our context. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And anytime we hear that phrase, our hearts should surge with joy. We've received the mercy of God and our hearts should feel a lot of humility. Let me explain it to you. Let's say that you're a young man and you are thinking about asking a young woman out for a date and you have a a, a birthday party with some friends before you ask this young woman out and you invite your three best friends and they know you're about to ask this woman out. You've been 
trying to get the courage up for about six months and you have a birthday party, your three best friends come and they know you're about to ask her out. And so they bring you mouthwash, deodorant, and a book about how to dress. Now that could be really humiliating, couldn't it? But maybe they're tuning into your exact need. They know exactly what you need. They know you don't have a chance with her unless you clean up and you need to, you're going to have to have better breath. You're going to have to have, uh, you have to dress a lot better. You're going to have to do, you have to make some changes. Well, here's what's interesting about receiving the mercy of God. When you and I are reminded that we once did not know God's mercy, but now we have received God's mercy, it really should grant us some deep, deep humility. I'm not a pastor because I was good enough. I'm a pastor because of the mercy of God. Josh and Liz aren't going to go and be missionaries and take to go to God because they're all stars, but no, they've experienced the mercy of God. And here's the mercy of God. When God in his love wanted to rescue rebels and sinners like me and like you in love, he sent his son to pay for our sins so that if we believed in him, our sins would be washed away. That's the mercy of God. When we remember that we've received God's mercy, it has to put us in places of deep, deep humility because the cost with which we've received the mercy of God. Jesus Christ shed his blood on the cross so that we would be forgiven, so that we would experience God's mercy. And that leads us into the passage today. Um, Peter went on to say, that's why I'm telling you to abstain from the, old, the way you used to live. And I want you to live lives, honorable lives in front of the Gentiles. And then he begins to break that down. And in this section, he's talking about living honorable lives, having received God's mercy in light of political authorities, cultural authorities. And this is what he says. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to the emperor who's supreme or the governor of the emperor sends to mete out judgments on people for their public behavior. And so here's what Peter said. Here's the first thing he wants us to do in light of being people rescued by God's mercy. And we know now it's our job to make the saving power of Jesus known. He wants us to be subject to public authorities, every authority instituted by God. Here's an illustration. Uh, This morning, uh, Rick was leading us in worship and he said, on this third stanza, please stand. And I was the only one that stood up and none of y'all obeyed. So that was the opposite of submission right there. Now, you didn't hear those clear directions from Rick, but I did hear them anyway. This is what Peter here is saying. He actually wants the people of God publicly to submit to the authorities that God puts over us in his providence no matter where we live. And uh, nations uh, at various times are going to be more or less turned against the kingdom of God. Every kingdom that isn't the kingdom of God uh, opposes the righteousness and justice and goodness of the king and the kingdom of God. Every culture does. But those cultures do so more or less at different times and seasons. And here's what Peter's saying to believers in the first century in Rome and the Roman emperors were unkind to Christians at this time and it would get worse. And Peter is saying, here's what I want you to do. I want you to honor the emperor. I want you to obey those authorities. I don't want there to be a case against you because you're the ones that are going to magnify the saving power of Jesus Christ. You know the true Lord of the nations and you want people to see him and his goodness. So don't cause a ruckus by living rebellious lives. That's what Peter is driving at in this passage. 
He wants us to be submissive, subject to every human authority that's established. And he gives us two reasons in the passage. In verse 14, the first reason is God wants them to do their job. And what's that? God wants the state, the the public authority to punish evildoers and praise those who do good. That's it. And so Peter's like, they need to do their job. That's God's design. That's God's will. So make sure you're the ones doing good who get praised and not the rebellious ones who get punished. And then secondly, he tells them that it's God's will. And it's very interesting. Reason number two, verse 15, this is how God wants you and me to hush, silence the voice of liars. Verse 15, for this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, just for a minute, look on your bulletin. We printed it in there, verse 12. Do you see that? It's at the bottom of your page, page 14. This, is, this flows right together. Peter had already written, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. That's a general statement. So that when, not if, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now he's saying, I want you to, to obey the, the rulers. This is God's will. So that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. What's Peter talking about? Just because you believe what God says, people who don't believe in God and believe what God says, it sometimes in every culture, they're going to look at Christians and they're going to say, you guys are evil. You guys are the problem. Outside the church, they're going to look at the church and say, you're the wicked and evil ones. And I'm 54 years old, so I can remember 30 years ago when the culture looked at the church, the culture in our culture in, in North America, the culture looked at the church and said, you guys are too too uh, morally narrow. Y'all are fuddy-duddies. You've got all these weird rules. We're out here having, we're on the fun side. And you guys, y'all, y'all have all these rules you obey. And, 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 and we kind of know we're being bad, but we're having fun being bad. And y'all aren't having any fun in there. That's kind of how they looked at us. Today, cultures outside of us look at the church and look at our morality and they think we're evil. They think our morality about uh, male and female and who should be married and how marriage should proceed in our culture, they look at that and they say that, 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 that we're evil, that our views are wicked and dehumanizing and that we're canceling people and that, that we don't love people and that we're not tolerant enough. And so it's really flipped how we're viewed. But here's the bottom line. If we hear what God says and just obey what God says, People are going to look at us when we're doing good and call good evil. So what's Peter's point? Don't increase their argument. Because when they watch your righteous lives, they're going to call righteousness evil. Don't engage in bad public behavior because then you're just going along with them. You're adding fuel to their fire of their false critique. Uh, Doug Webster has been a long-term friend of Covenant Presbyterian Church, and he had a friend named David Mensa who for a little while uh, lived in Africa and he worked in Ghana and around Ghana and he was working with fishermen on the Black Volta, which is a river uh, there in the northern part where, uh, where it passes through Ghana. And at one point, the fishermen there were having a, a struggle and they were trying to have enough to feed their families and make a living. And they discovered DDT, that super strong insecticide. And they discovered if they dropped DDT in the river, uh, it killed all the fish and the fish would float to the top and it was a lot easier to fish. Uh, under those circumstances. And so they began to use DDT as fishermen. And David Mensa got in there and he realized that 
This was a terrible strategy. It was going to work really well for a very short period of time, but they were ruining the ecology of the river. And so he worked with them and he convinced them that they were actually working against their their own uh, well-being for the long term. And he, he worked and worked and argued and argued and he won people over. At one point, uh, villagers, 500 volunteers policed the river themselves to make sure people didn't pour more DDT. The river came back filled with perch and all kinds of fish and, and it came back. But while he was contending that what they were doing with DDT was wrong, he had some critics. He had one critic, and this guy's name was Ator, and Ator uh, took every opportunity to criticize David. And eventually, David proved to be right, and he saved the fishing industry there. And and so Ator had to come to David, and he said these words, I want your forgiveness. I hated you and took every opportunity to condemn you, but you were right. And so that's living a holy and good life so that that his testimony of the Lord Jesus was confirmed by his life and not contradicted by his life. And that's what Peter is driving for us here. Then he moves uh, into verse 16 and tells us not only to be subject to human authorities, but he also tells us to live as free people. That sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? Look at verse 16. Live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Here's the truth, and I want you to believe it when I say it, and maybe we'll need to have a long conversation. Everyone in this room is serving somebody. Everyone in this room has a real Lord that we're serving. And here's how Christian freedom works. Uh, Christian freedom uh, is freedom from the dehumanizing bondage to live as God's holy servants. If you're serving someone other than God, uh, you're serving an idol. And at some level, you're being dehumanized, being led around by a God that isn't a true God, that's not generous, that's not kind, that can't actually help you. So true Christian freedom is to be set free uh, from ways that don't match our, our design, Um, And to then live as servants of God. This reminds me of one of my favorite simple illustrations that Tim Keller used to use to illustrate Christian freedom. He talked about, can you picture the little children, that little eight-year-old boy uh, who sees the goldfish in the fish fish bowl and he wants to set the fish free. Oh, I want that that poor fish in that fish bowl. Let's set him free. And so the little boy goes to the fish bowl. What does he do? He dumps the fish out of the fish bowl and that fish is very, very free on the carpet for about 30 seconds. But that fish was designed to live in the water, not outside of it. True Christian freedom is being set free from bondage to live as servants of God, to live into the design the creator has given for us. And to live according to the creator's designs is true freedom. The creator loves us. He's generous and kind and wise. And we live according to his ways. That's true freedom. But yet we're still his servants. And so then at the end in verse 17, Peter just makes it super concrete. So if you like uh, concrete particulars, uh, here's how Peter uh, ends this little section. He's going to tell us how to live, what to do. Verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Isn't that interesting? An interesting summary. Show people great honor and dignity. Outsiders, honor them, honor them. Inside, love the brotherhood and fear God. First of all, starting off, honor everyone. Uh, There was someone I was listening to recently. She's a journalist 
and she was doing some research on about how the medical professionals, particularly doctors, have cared for their patients through the different generations through the decades. And so she was interviewing all kinds of doctors, just kind of asked them, you know, just what, what were the different standards of care and how did you relate to your patients through the decades? And she spoke to one doctor who was an older uh, Jewish doctor. And, and he told her a story during her investigations. And he told her that one time when he was practicing, uh, there was a man that came in. He had a very, re- the doctor had a very recognizable Jewish name. And a large man came into his office and he had a big swastika tattoo, anti-Semitism swastika tattoo on his arm. And the doctor uh, saw it and, and he walked in and he saw the doctor's Jewish name and he, and he read it. And the patient with the swastika repeated the Jewish name three times, sort of just tuning in. I see that you are Jewish. I see, it's clicking for me. I see that you're Jewish with this big swastika tattoo. And the doctor wanted to kind of diffuse the situation and it was very awkward. And so he said, oh, you know what? I've never had a tattoo before. Uh, I hear they hurt sometimes. Can you tell me about that? And so the patient kind of chuckled and just kind of ignored it and went on. Well, it turns out that that patient was a drug addict and over years he got off of drugs. And one day he got a job and one day his health began to improve and partly because of his Jewish doctor, but also other people helping him. But at the end, uh, this doctor was leaving the practice after 12 years and this neo-Nazi patient came in to see him for the last time at the end of 12 years. And when he came in, the doctor looked at him and, and saw that he had a horrible rash on his arm. He goes, oh my goodness, look at that. Look at that rash. We need to treat that. We need to treat you. What do you what's going on? And that large man burst into tears. And he said, I knew I was going to see you again. So I tried to rub it off. Honor everyone. It's really powerful if you know the Lord and you seek to honor everyone. Eventually, truth and righteousness and kindness are vindicated. It's very, very powerful. So Peter writes, honor everyone. And then he says, love the brotherhood. I went to a wedding last night and it was a member of, of Covenant Prez and, and I watched uh, their son get married. And I looked around at one point, uh, we were standing in the lobby of, the, of the, where the reception was and I looked up and I was surrounded by like 30 people from Covenant Prez. And I looked around and I realized that the vast majority of them, their, their children had been discipled uh, using this material as they became communicant members of this church. I began to realize uh, they had raised their children together. They had poured into each other's lives. They showed up on the hard days and celebrated the fun days together uh, for decades. And I just want you to know that's what it means to be God's people. Love the brotherhood. Look around. This is your family. These are your people. In in about a year, it's going to break our hearts to send Josh and Liz to Tegus. Why? Because we're family. Because we love them. This is the gift of life. If your heart's never broken, it's because you don't love anybody. And what a gift it is. Love the brotherhood. Love the family. Doesn't mean feel a certain way all the time. No, it means give your lives to one another in deep, genuine devotion. It's a privilege to be 
part of a church. Not just have your name on a membership role, but to belong to God and to belong to his people, to have family, people who will show up when you're wrong and say, I love you, you're wrong. People, when you're having a low day because they love you in Christ, will show up and and encourage you and remind you of your better days and your gifts. It's great to love the brotherhood and be part uh, of the family. And then Peter says uh, two words that are really, really important. Fear God. This is very similar to something I said about 10 minutes ago, but I I want you to believe this with me. There's something that's pulling your whole life together. There's something that you revere above everything else and it's holding your whole life together. It might be comfort. It might be pleasure. It might be safety. I don't know what it is, but there's something holding your whole life together and there's nothing that we should revere above God himself. And that's what Peter is saying here. Hold the one true God in highest reverence. And here's what that means. If you hold God in highest reverence, God will be what your life is about. God will be what your marriage is about. God will be what parenting is about. God will be what it's about to be a member of a church. God will be what it's about to have the vocational calling that you have. God will be the centerpiece of what it means to be the kind of neighbor that you are. This is what Peter means. Fear God. Hold the one true creator God in highest reverence in everything all the time. Something is already playing that role in all of our lives. Is it the... Is it God? What will you hold up against God and say, you know what? Uh, God's great, but I really want to build my life around what else? Which one of his gifts, which distorted gift of his will you make the centerpiece, that thing that galvanizes the whole of your heart, mind, and will around, if not the Lord himself? Fear God is a great commandment. It'll save you from all kinds of Misery and sorrow to revere God above all things. Then again, he repeats his point, honor the emperor. Honor, 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 honor. Show people honor. Show people honor. Think about how tempting it is. I was recently reminded of a theologian uh, who said, of all the vices, anger is the most fun. It's just so tempting to treat people with dishonor. It's so tempting to sit in judgment on other people. It's so tempting to be right and to be above and to be better than. It's just so tempting. But sisters and brothers, we've experienced the mercy of God. Peter knows something about this, remember? Uh, Peter was with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And at one point, Peter tried to defend Jesus with a sword. And Jesus healed the man whose ear got chopped off. And then he demanded that Peter put the sword away. And as Ed Clowney wonderfully said, his, Jesus' hands did not grasp a sword, but were stretched out to be pierced with nails. That's why our passage begins this, be subject to every human institution for the Lord's sake. The Lord who gave his life for you and me. The Lord who did not come initially in judgment, but came to bear the judgment that we deserved so that we would see ourselves as rescued by the grace and mercy of God and seek to live simple, straightforward lives that never detract from God's grace 
and God's glory, but are always putting it on display, even in small acts of love and consistent acts of humility, even when that means not being cynical and unkind about neighbors, even those we disagree with. If you and I are going to live lives like this, very simple and very straightforwardly, we're going to need the grace and help and strength of our Savior. And it's offered to us in worship, and particularly as he draws near to us and welcomes us into his presence at his table. Let's pray and draw near to him for strength and grace. Oh, Lord Jesus, how thankful we are that you did not come for our judgment, but for mercy's sake, you came and took judgment in our place. And now as we come to you at your table, we want to remember your great sacrifice. But more than that, we need your grace and your strength today to be your healthy and holy people. We need you as you've promised to feed us and nourish us, to strengthen us, to make us your gracious people here together at your table. So do it for your namesake and for our good. Amen.